I had this belief that doing for Jesus was more important than being. So I was far more of a Martha than I was a Mary uh, in terms of the way I approached ministry. I had very little time for any of that sitting at the feet thing. I had to be out doing things for Jesus and proving my value there. Another thing is, I think my theology would have been more Jesus plus theology. And Jesus plus theology works this way. Jesus comes, he saves us by grace, but now I need to add my good behavior and my accomplishments to the equations in order to see blessings come from God. So there was always this sense of what are the rules, what are the rituals, what are the obligations that I need to fulfill. So. Seth, I would say my Christianity was far more transactional than was relational. And I, I don't think I was alone in that. I think there are many people that get caught up in that exact same thing. But once you're pulled through a knothole backwards, things begin to change. Ninety-nine. Episode ninety-nine. We're almost there. Almost to a hundred. Welcome to Monday, or whatever day it is that you downloaded the show. I'm excited you're here. Remember to rate and review the show, support the show on Patreon, all the normal things. Actually, let me circle back on Patreon. It's October now, and so another uptick in Patreon supporters this month by a few. And yeah, I'm blown away, be it a dollar, be it all the dollars, it doesn't really matter. The fact that you take the time to support the show means that the show can be one. I know I speak for myself and my family when they say that the show has taken over parts of the basement and the books and the time and really not possible without you all. It's not why you downloaded the show though, but should you feel so led, click the button. You can find all of that information at the website for Can I Say This at Church. Just literally Google Can I Say This at Church and it will pop right up. I've tried it every way from Sunday. You can't find, there's no way to not find the show. Anyway, today I had a conversation with Terry Wardle. So Terry has been a lot of things. He's he's definitely a you know, dad. He's a he's a husband. He's a, a sibling. But he's also been a minister. He's been a professor. He's he's walked a lot of roads through life. And he writes really well about trauma and how it matters, why it matters, and kind of what are some of the safer ways that we can do this. And while this is not a be all end all conversation about trauma because that would take years to do, uh, I think it is a good beginning to that. And so I really hope that you enjoy the show. Here we go. Terry Wardle. Welcome to the show, and thank you for getting me an advanced copy of your book. I've, I've enjoyed reading it. I'll be honest, I haven't finished it. I try my best to finish every book before I speak to people, but I have not been able to finish yours. I'm about halfway through, but I've really enjoyed what I've read so far. I'm excited for the conversation, and welcome again to the show, man. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you, Seth. Uh, it's a, a great opportunity to talk about the book and also just to talk about the Lord. We, uh, I mean, we were chatting just off off a bit a second ago. If I, I used to be down here doing by, this by myself anyway, so I may as well 
have a conversation with people because people don't do that anymore. They just yell, they just yell at each other. So yeah, I've been, I've enjoyed doing this this past couple of years. Um, it's been a blessing to me and I've grown a lot. So, um, well, tell us a bit about you, like what makes Terry Wardle, Terry Wardle. And, and to be honest, a lot of that is covered in your book, but not everybody has read the book that is listening to this and they can fix that. Cause by the time this is out, the, the book should be out and you, you should rectify that. It's a great book. But what would you say to those listening that, that aren't familiar with you a bit about yourself and kind of what makes you tick? What makes you you? Uh, wow. There's so many uh, dimensions to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, most importantly, years ago, you know, the Lord stood before me as he does all of us and invited me into his heart. And that became a major uh, change and a re- major transition for my whole life. And uh, out of that, I decided that I was going to respond yes to the call to serve him with my life and ended up spending my entire uh, adult uh, ministry in different forms of Christian ministry. For a while, I was a pastor, and then I went into the academy, and I taught for over 30 years in theological seminaries. Uh, so that's part of it. I think the more exciting parts of it is that I'm a, a husband of 45 years, uh, a uh, father of three adults that are all married and have children, and I have six grandchildren, and I spend most of my time, if not all of it, training people to position broken men and women for healing encounters with Christ around issues of emotional wounding. Of those three things, pastor, academic, and te- or what, what you say the academy, what is that? What do you mean the academy? Well, that's just a term that you use when you spent your life in either college or university okay. education. Uh, it's a much more academic pursuit, although my focus in seminary was on practical theology. So I was really helping people understand how to apply the teachings of scripture in a in a ministry setting that's going to bring dynamic change to people's lives. What of those two things fills a bigger hole for you? Like, has it been equal throughout your life where you're like, yeah, pastoring, I'm done with that. I'm going to set that aside for now. And I feel called to teaching or do they hold an equal, like when you, when you reflect on them, do they equally hold the same weight or is there one that you liked better? And for what reason? Well, you know, Seth, I think for me, um, there came a point in which I transitioned from seeing myself in a profession to understanding a more biblical concept of vocation and vocation simply means a way of life, a respond to the voice of God and that you determine you're going to live your life according to that call. And so I think that there would be pastoral aspects of my life, whether I were pastoring a church or not, and there would be teaching aspects of my life, whether I was teaching or not, uh, because those are some of the giftings that God's given me. But out of my own journey, it all began to focus in as I started to teach people more and more how to experience the Lord in the place of unrepaired emotional ruptures. And uh, then I was able to use both my pastoral concern and empathy and my gifts of teaching to begin to uh, help other people learn how to position folks who have an experience of Christ in, in what I would call uh, deep emotional wounding. Emotional wounding is a big thing. And I know as I spoke with you know, Chelsea, who's the one that put us together, she had talked about, you know, you wrote so beautifully, and I agree on you know, trauma and emotional wounding specifically as a child. And I know um, I've, I've had a lot of conversations lately about child rearing and ensuring that we do the least amount of damage to our children so that hopefully they don't have so much to break apart when they get older. 
in a more healthy way. So the church is more healthy, families are more healthy. Uh, you know, psychology has progressed. So when you say emotional wounding or like you know trauma, what do we mean? Because that's a very general term. And so what are you getting at when you say that? Well, I want to to make it rather simple for everyone. I'll divide it into five categories. Uh, first, trauma is really anything that occurs to us that disrupts the normal developmental cycle. And it isn't something that's easily defined that this is traumatic and that is not, but events that we experience in which it's highly emotional and we do not perceive a way of escape that we want to run. We do not perceive the ability to fight though we want to fight. And then what happens is it has this traumatizing impact on us. So I always divide the conversation into five types of trauma um, in childhood wounds of withholding. When parents were not able to connect deeply, were not affirming, were not encouraging, were uh, not giving children the impression that the party begins when they come into the room, that that can have a traumatizing impact. It impacts the way they often view themselves and view God and other people. So wounds of withholding. Then there's wounds of aggression. Some of us are raised in homes where physical, spiritual, emotional, relational wounding occurs. And uh, it, it has an impact on our lives. And many of us try to believe we just get over it. But studies today show that it can have a deep psychological and sometimes physical impact on our lives. And then I would talk about event trauma, where individuals have gone through a very difficult circumstance, a, a, an illness, uh, uh, someone they love dearly lo- passed away, or even events like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods that Those, again, impact our sense that the world is safe and we can control it. And then I would say there's probably two other types of wounding that people struggle with. Uh, One of them I would call betrayal trauma, where individuals with power abuse their power, whether that be teachers abusing students or doctors abusing patients or, or, um, you know, nurses uh, abusing people they care for. And then the final one I call uh, the trauma of, prolonged duress, which means that some people have lived in situations where there's just a a constant sense of anxiety. And when you're a child and you're in adolescence and any one of these begins to happen in our lives, it can have a long-term impact on our psychological, relational, spiritual, and physical resilience. And what happens for many of us, Seth, is we find Jesus, which is great, And we begin to want to follow him, which is important. We invite the Holy Spirit into our lives so that he can help to form us. But for a lot of folks, there are still unresolved emotional issues. And many people carry those way into their adulthood. I've met people that are in their 80s that are still struggling with their view of self and view of God and view of other people because of events that occurred when they were children. And I know that was true in my life, and there wasn't a pathway for me to really understand that, but all of a sudden it began to open before me that these are issues that I think God wants to address in our lives. Your book that, that is coming out soon, so Some Kind of Crazy, I like the title because you'll hear, I've heard that a lot, especially growing up. I grew up in West Texas, and you know, like that boy over there, he's some kind of crazy, which can either be an, an affectionate term or or an entirely non-affectionate term. Uh, it's, it's equivalent for me with, you know, bless her heart or whatever. Right. You, you talk a lot, and so I now live in Appalachia. I live right outside of the Blue Ridge Parkway, right where Skyline Drive starts. And so um, I find myself being drawn in at the beginning, but 
you, you, I'm, I'm going to go through this, right? So you talk so much about trauma and fear. And I'm curious at the interplay between those two. Is there any trauma without fear or the, the, are, they, are they always attached at the hip? And then how does that impact the way that children become humans? Well, well, human, yeah, I, I mean, adults, not, not, yeah. you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, I think the issue, if we can really talk about it from a more neurobiological perspective for just a moment, is that when we're in a situation um, in which that reptilian part of the brain begins to kick off that this is a fight or flight circumstance and we can't fight and we can't run, that it begins to really generate this deep sense that the world is a fundamentally unsafe place and I'm not going to be able to handle it. And that's where a lot of anxiety and fear begins to arise. If we were in families where people understood that and they had an empathic connection with a child uh, and they were able to have a proper, healthy, secure attachment, then those kinds of things can be processed and downloaded. But for many individuals, um, they experience this kind of an event, whether it's one time or over time. And it, it, to some degree, leaves a part of ourselves suspended in that wounding, and we just try to grow beyond it. And yet there's this part of us that is still living in this perpetual sense of anxiety and fear. And then what happens as a result of it, which happened in my life, is you begin to compensate for this fear by a whole lot of dysfunctional behaviors in order to cope with this deep internal storm that's going on inside of you. And you hope someday you can just run as far away from it as you can. Unfortunately, unresolved trauma will always run you down. So in my case, you know, I was, I mean, born into a broken family, not unlike a lot of folks. My dad came from a horribly broken home in which he knew a lot of violence. My mother came from a home in which uh, her mom died when she was 18 months old, her dad when she was eight, her grandmother when she was 14. Then she went to live with an aunt that didn't want her. So they bring into their parenting this level of dysfunction and then being raised in a family that, you know, my extended family uh, had a disdain for religion and education and an openness to breaking the law. And you could see that you start to combine a lot of that in a young child's life and it can create a rather intense and anxious world. And then as a young child, I experienced some rather significant trauma, including not just abuse, but but experiencing and seeing death very early on. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to grow out of it. And it came a point in my life where I found that anger uh, could mask a lot of that. And then I pushed down that road of aggression and, you know, it, it didn't pay good benefits. Eventually, I came to Christ, which was wonderful, but I don't think I would be misspeaking that many of us have discovered that when you accept Jesus, which is tremendous, all the problems of your life don't go away. <laughs> some, and, of, some of them get worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that some of the solutions Christians give for problem solving are really frustrating because it doesn't work. And just to memorize scripture when you're dealing with an unresolved emotional pain of the past is not enough. We need to have these experiences of re-engaging these stories, meeting Jesus in these stories, and being able to move out, not only to a new understanding, but to a new experience in the very places where we once experienced this, this high level of pain. You write beautifully um, early on in the book about kind of your 
coming to see God moment. But I'm curious, and, and because you've got it in the perspective, and maybe I missed it in the book, of your extended family having a standoffish view towards religion, which, to be honest, to me is slightly... Uh, not what I usually am accustomed with growing up here in Appalachia. There's like an, there's a, a almost a born intuitiveness of some form of religion, whether or not you're practicing or not. Um, so I'm curious about that. But can you talk to us a bit about like when you came to Christ? Because I love the way you write about it. Um, I believe it's that story about the mosque. If I'm not mistaken, I don't have the, that note in front of me, but it's just a beautiful right. story. I'm wondering if you could break into that a bit. Yes. Well, let me begin with the first part of, uh, you know, my grandfather, my great grandfather, he came over from England and established a, a, a family here with eight children. He left England having gotten out of prison. And so he moves his way into southwestern Pennsylvania and they begin to establish themselves as, as coal miners and farmers. And none of them uh, in that broad family would have found church as an element in their life, or in fact, religion. My, my own father, he used to make fun of people that went to church. And if anyone in our extended family did, he would always in a mocking way, ask them if they were saved. But early on in my experience, my mother began to attend a, a rather strange revival service. And in the midst of what was a combination of uh, simple, but somewhat distorted gospel and a bit of a vaudevillian approach to uh, church, she did have an experience of meeting Christ, and we then ended up being pulled into church. Uh, it was kind of a combination of legalism and Pentecostalism combined, which, you know, that can be an interesting brew. But out of that, um, I started to attend a youth group, and the youth group uh, leaders decided that they wanted to take us all into Pittsburgh, and there's a great big meeting hall in there called the Syria Mosque. And we went there because David Wilkerson was coming, sponsored by Catherine Kuhlman. And uh, he was bringing uh, some of those gang members that he had won to Christ in New York City, Nikki Cruz and others. And I went along because it was what the youth group was doing and there were girls involved and it was, uh, you know, fine to go. And uh, when I got there, uh, we, you know, make our way uh, crowd pushing in and we make our way up to the balcony, which I wasn't all that happy about being in a balcony in a creaking wooden chair. And they began to sing a lot of songs I wouldn't have been accustomed to. And I remember one man sang a solo uh, that uh, was uh, his eyes on the sparrow. And then pretty soon Catherine Kuhlman comes, who was quite the personality. And uh, she kind of comes across the stage. And I, I remember that was the first time of several times that I saw her. And I even wondered if she walked. It seemed like she was floating across the stage, asking everybody if we were waiting for her. And apparently a lot of people were. I wasn't, but it was interesting. And uh, soon she invited David Wilkerson to come up. And he had a couple of these uh, gang members speak. And then he began to preach this sermon on the sword of the Lord is going to come through the land. And I mean, it was a barn burner of a hellfire sermon. And it scared me so badly that I kicked shins and bunched knees all the way out trying to get out of that row, made my way outside, and then suddenly realized, I don't know how to get home from here. And if I don't make it to the bus, I'm going to be stuck in Pittsburgh. And that's something I'd never experienced. So I go back in to the uh, Syria mosque and went into the restroom thinking I'll wait it out there with their big chairs. And they just preached, uh, pumped the sermon straight into the restroom. So I couldn't escape this moment. <laughs> I made my way back up to the balcony when, Billy, when uh, 
when Dave Wilkerson's about to say, if there's anyone here that doesn't want to go to hell, come on down and fall. Uh, and to be honest with you, Seth, by that time, I knew this. I don't want to go to hell. He's pretty well painted a picture of it that wants me to be free of it. And I went down and there was this moment I was kneeling there and someone led me through a little prayer. And I had this profound moment of knowing that in spite of the fact that this was a sermon about God being angry in hell, I had this deep touch of God's acceptance and love. And I went like a baby as a teenager because something occurred inside of me that was almost unexplainable. And to this day, what I would say is that God placed a homing device in me. And, you know, I left that event, you know, with one foot in the world and one foot in the church for an awful long time. But always aware that somewhere deep inside was this beckoning of God's love to come into his embrace. And then later in life, as I was um, leaving my college years, I had a, a, a second profound returning, if you will, that then totally reoriented my life. And I decided I wanted to spend my whole life serving the Lord. I don't want to say meteoric, but you 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 ran into success early on. It seems like in your life and in your in your answering of a call that many pastors or people honestly would be would want to, but that came with a lot of baggage. And so my question is is this: I, I find often as I talk with pastors and I message with pastors, as opposed as a as a as a part of this conversation, I'll have people email into the show. Um, Pastors specifically are not prepared to deal with trauma, especially not their own. And it seems to implode, not the church necessarily, but it definitely implodes their ability to effectively um, to lead, to pastor, to come alongside people and to bear more burdens. And so can you talk to that a bit of, you, you talked about it earlier, I think you said you, know, you, you taught practical theology. I think that's what you said. How are some ways that in your experience and your life experiences, you know, you've gone through, you know, depression, a bunch of other things. So what are some ways that not we can protect ourselves against it? Because I don't think that you can even do that if you wanted to, to protect yourself against trauma and fear. But what are ways that people listening can be like, all right, so here's some things that I need to do, because when this happens, I have to have some way to do this well, as opposed to just everything falling off the rails and exploding. Well, I'm going to take a run up to that, uh, Seth, because I, I think it's a it's a great question. It demands a little bit of a broader answer. For me, there was no question in my life that God had placed some gifting in my life and uh, the anointing of the Spirit in my life. And as a result of that and my own performance drive to prove I have worth, uh, there was a significant amount of success. Big growing churches. I started a church in California. It was seven or eight people on our back porch. And within a year and a half, there were eight or 900. So, you know, a lot of good things happening, a couple books early on. Then I went to seminary community, eventually became the head of that seminary. So by all outward appearances, there was a lot of what some might see as success. But unfortunately, there was a grand canyon of unresolved emotional wounding that I had never taken the time to deal with. 
And even when the anxiety would raise up, begging for me to pay attention to what was unaddressed, I just pushed on and did more and more until finally I kind of fell into that Grand Canyon and ended up uh, actually in a psychiatric hospital for a month getting care for depression and agoraphobia. So when we begin to talk about other people's journeys, several things. One of them is um, we got to recognize that our body and our emotions is trying to get our attention, but we often try to kill what the body and the emotions are saying. And so we got to learn to listen. When anxiety comes, when fears come, when there are deep longings inside that don't seem to be met, when uh, we feel like, you know, things are a bit out of control. I always argue that's a deep part of ourselves begging for our attention. And what many of us do is it's like a smoke alarm is going off and we just turn the smoke alarm off rather than find out the source of the problem. And, and another thing is that some of the dysfunctional behaviors that we engage in, uh, even in ministry of performance and competition and comparison, workaholism, people pleasing, these are indication of deep issues inside that the Lord wants to meet us in. So I think the first thing I would say to folks is you got to learn to pay attention to what what's being said inside of you through your spirit and through your body and through your emotions. And you also got to take a look at this factor. Most dysfunctional behaviors that we engage in, whether it's control or people-pleasing or dependencies or sexual addictions and so forth, are being driven by emotional wounds that have never been healed, that have created a lot of distorted ways of thinking about God and self and others, that also creates a lot of emotional baggage. And we end up trying to kill it through different kinds of coping skills. Yeah. So I think that's really important. Let me say one other thing about this. I think it's important to recognize we got to have support. We need a certain kind of support. We don't know, need people to play can you top this or people that want to minimize what we've gone through. We need a safe group of people that understand this formula. Vulnerability in a place of grace always leads to transformation. And so we need those kind of safe communities. I like that. Vulnerability in a safe, in a space of grace. At least that's what you said, right? A space of grace. Yeah. Leaves the, yeah. About halfway through your book, you talk about, and I don't really want to touch on your time in a psychiatric hospital because I don't really know how to ask questions well about that because my uh, closeness to it is too far away, if that makes sense. like I, I find myself hard. It's hard for me to put that into words, although I, I liked I just don't know how to ask anything about it. So I'm curious, though, your faith, you know, walking into planning churches in California and then your faith today um, you, you talk a bit about, you know, you were grasping at straws and you use an allegory or a metaphor of, you know, if, if it was a race to, to stay attached to God, and I think you say an inchworm would have beaten you, um, which is just a beautiful metaphor. So I'm curious, what are, what are some, you know, a handful of things that you're like, yeah, you know, this was what was true. And then after all of this and some, you know, stick to and then also some deep self-reflection and prayer and searching and cracking back open the Bible, like, what are some things now that you hold that you're like, oh man, this is this is where grace is, and this is where Jesus is, and this is how Christ is alive now, as opposed to the you that started churches, you know, early on in your ministry. Well, there are so many pieces of this that I, I would love to talk about. Let me begin with a positive, and that is that Paul was right when he said that people, even of mixed motive, can bring glory to Christ. When you know, if they're preaching Christ even out of bad motives. 
let him go on because people are going to be saved. So there were great things that happened in a lot of these churches and people's lives were changed, but there were really some mixed motives in the midst of this call to ministry and, and the way I responded to ministry. And here are some things that I think were really tough that I'll be different now on this side. One of them was I had this belief that doing for Jesus was more important than being. So I was far more of a Martha than I was a Mary uh, in terms of the way I approached ministry. I had very little time for any of that sitting at the feet thing. I had to be out doing things for Jesus and proving my value there. Another thing is I think my theology would have been more Jesus plus theology. And Jesus plus theology works this way. Jesus comes, he saves us by grace, but now I need to add my good behavior and my accomplishments to the equations in order to see blessings come from God. Hmm. So there was always this sense of what are the rules? What are the rituals? What are the obligations that I need to fulfill? So Seth, I would say my Christianity was far more transactional than it was relational. And I, I don't think I was alone in that. I think there are many people that get caught up in that exact same thing. But once you're pulled through a knothole backwards, things begin to change. And a couple of things that changed for me is that I really began to understand the security of identity that is ours in Christ. And it's about Jesus, not about me. Uh, that Paul was right when he basically asked the question, do you think God pours out his spirit because you behave? Or is it because you have faith in what Christ has done? So there was a lot more moving toward identity security. All of a sudden, it goes from being transactional to relational. Um, all of a sudden, the gospel becomes something much more breathtaking, almost scandalous in its acceptance. And then here's another characteristic that was very important that I live by now, and that is our Lord really loves to meet people in the ditch and then turn their wounds into a place of healing for others. And I think before this, the people I hung with and myself, we pretty much hid our wound and tried to run away from our wounds, not knowing that Jesus wanted to move through those wounds to actually bring healing to other people. And those, those four or five things that I've shared have been huge shifts hmm. in the paradigm of Christian life for me. How is that shift kind of affecting the way that you are husband or the way that you are father or grandfather? Um, because I feel like Oftentimes, uh, some of the feedback that I get is, you know, when you begin to see God in a different way or the heart of God in a different way, those that aren't in that same car with you uh, are standoffish or they're in the car ambivalent or they are, they just jettison altogether. And so how has that affected the way that you're involved, I guess, in your family? You know what I mean? Because that, that is a big part of that. Cause that's, that's your, those are your people or at least they're mine. Well, absolutely. They're the closest community and the folks that I love the most. Uh, let me say first that it's important that we always live out our journey honestly before them, both the peaks and the valleys. And that's something I've tried to do with them. But I've had this little saying that I've lived by now for 20 some years, and that is uh, health begets health. And that when you choose into a new health, and at first it receives a certain amount of resistance from people, that if you stay the course, keep choosing health, keep living grace, keep securing your identity in Christ, all of a sudden people begin to turn toward it and not away from it. 
And it's actually revolutionized our marriage with Cheryl and I. It's revolutionized our children. And we're certainly trying to impact that with our grandchildren, that knowing who you are in Christ is such an important part of moving toward health. You know, there was a great African-American statesman named Howard Thurman, and -hmm. he wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And in that book, this is what he said. Awareness of being a child of God is what gives a person ego, courage, and strength. And what I think is important is that he didn't say being a child of God. He said being aware that you are a child of God. And that being aware is all based on kind of Galatians 4, where Paul says, Jesus came, born of a woman, that we might And then I always use three eyes that we might have a new identity as God's children. We might have a new identity, uh, intimacy with the Holy Spirit living within us. And we have a new inheritance that we can begin to tap now and for all eternity. And so that becomes for me, the way I want to respond to the people in my, in my family and in my circle of influence that they begin to understand the scandalous nature of this gospel in which Christ crosses the universe in order to bring us near to God. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about. When Paul said, once you were far away, but now through Christ you have been brought near. One of the stories that gripped me the most that you wrote about, and I've read it, so again, I haven't read the full book, but I've read this section multiple times. I don't know why I'm drawn to it, Um, but I'd like to hear you talk about it a bit. So you tell a story of your son, Aaron, accepting a position as a worship pastor in the church that you founded in California. I think that's right. And there's there's a story behind that there. Can you go into that a bit? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I had this breakdown when I was in California, when I was actually pastoring that church that had grown so much. And there were a lot of factors, both locally and inwardly, that contributed to this breakdown. And so Seth, to a degree... One of the happiest days of my life was when I saw California in the rearview mirror. Hmm. And it isn't that there was something inherently bad about California. It just was the the context and the location of a lot of pain and brokenness, even though there were great people around me. So as we made our way and I took a new appointment and began to teach in Ashland, Ohio, pretty soon all my family comes to be there. And my son was the assistant dean of religious life at the university, which is a kind of a coveted position for a young man. And we were happy and our grandchildren were there. And all of a sudden he comes to me one day and he says that um, God called him to leave his position and that he was going to move. And that alone kind of shook me off my pins because I felt so good and safe now that we were all together. And then when he shared with me, he was moving back to California. I must say that my first thought was he's moving straight back to the pits of hell. Um, and uh, It was really an emotional moment and it created a little bit of a tension between my son and I. And then when I asked him where he was going and he said he was going back to that church, I'll be honest with you. I was not happy at all. And he and I had a conflict that we had to really work through because at an emotional level, I have to admit, I saw it as a betrayal, though it wasn't what it actually was was um, an invitation of God for me to deal with yet some more unresolved issues of my life because 
when I escaped California, I think God was trying to tell me I left part of myself behind and I needed some healing and some closure. And by the fact that my son decided to go there and I had told him, I'll never go there again. You need to know if you want to see me, you'll have to fly to where I am. Mm. But being married, <laughs> my wife decided she wanted to see those <laughs> grandchildren. So you lost. The back out there. <laughs> Um, but you know what? It became a journey of reclamation. I didn't see it. I didn't want it. I fought against it. If there was ever my example of kicking against goads, that was the example. But in the midst of it all, suddenly God showed me some unresolved places inside that I needed to deal with. And it brought a, a, a real emotional and, if I may say, experiential healing into my life. Both. So in two different stories that you told tonight, and I, I don't I don't know if I would have connected this prior. So earlier you were talking about hearing a sermon and you go to the bathroom and the sermon's still there. You can't escape it. And that made me think of Jonah. And now you're talking about California. And I just keep thinking of Nineveh. And you're like, I'm not going back there. I don't care what you say. I'm not going to go. I'm not doing it. And then lo and behold, there you are, healthier for it. And I guess so is California. Why not? Um, but I don't know why. That may be stretching the the... the this description no, no. bit, but I don't know. I'm just reminded of it. So we've talked a lot about brokenness and pain and trauma, but that is not all that you talk about in your book. So you talk about, uh, and it's right on the cover, like breathtaking grace. And so a lot of people give lip service to grace and they sing about it in songs and nobody knows. I don't think what they mean when they say grace. And so when you say breathtaking grace, what does that actually mean? I'm going to, yeah, let me go this way. You mentioned the title of the book, Some Kind of Crazy, and it actually has a double meaning. Part of it is some kind of crazy is, you know, my own journey through my own, if you will, madness. But the other one is some kind of crazy is the crazy love that God extends to us, even in the midst uh, of our brokenness. That's why I happen to really, you know, hang, you know, hook myself into uh, Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out. And, and so when we begin to talk about grace, I, I actually feel that grace in its truest form is scandalous. Because grace, look, I, I often say this to people. You, you got a choice between two little formulas. Jesus did absolutely everything needed for you to be secure before God as his child. Or Jesus did almost everything needed for you to be secure as God's child, and then you make up the rest of your behavior. Now, a lot of people would never say the latter. And yes, when they think about it, it's probably the way they're living. And, and grace is that Christ crossed the universe, lived a perfect life, assigns our name to it, and then welcomes him into our family, and we are then secure. You know, Seth, you know, without getting preachy, I, I, I want to say the prodigal son story is part of this breathtaking grace. Look, before he left, he was the son. While he was away, he still was the son. When he came back, the first thing the father says is, you are the son. I mean, that's grace. There's no behavior requirement there. Now, his behavior may have broken fellowship, but it never broke his identity as God's child. And so Paul, he talks in several places. I think Romans 9 is a good example. And certainly Romans 11, where he says this, um, the Gentiles have found a righteousness, a righteousness by faith. And he says, in essence, without even trying. Other people 
are trying to gain a righteousness through behavior and obeying the law, which they will never do. And so the notion of grace is that we're suddenly swept away with this breathtaking recognition that God loves us so much that he's provided everything we need to be secure as his child. And then, once we're touched by that grace, we respond with a grace-filled, worshipful response, whereby we say, Holy Spirit, help us live now out of who we really are. And then what do I do with that? So I answer that response and I'm going to live now where I am. <laughs> what does that, and feel free to get preachy. Like, what does that mean? Like, what am I going to do? Like, will that, like if, if that call is something that I don't feel like I can do, or if that call is something that I kind of refuse to do, because um, I think that's most often the posture of most people. Like, I think I hear what I'm supposed to be doing and I think I know what I'm equipped to do or what I should be doing, or what I'm qualified to do, and I'm just not going to do that. Like, How would you answer that call? Because you've done that often throughout your life. Like, all right, let's do this. I need to be a professor now. Oh, I can't be a professor. I need to start a church now. I need to stop doing that now. Like, That's rare. I don't think most people answer the call. And so when you respond to that grace, how do, we, how do you respond? Well, I'm going to suggest there are three responses to scandalous grace. One of it is this. You, 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 it so takes your breath away that all you can do is say, I want to spend the rest of my life aligning my life with this unbelievable gospel of grace and living through the Spirit's help according to the call of the Father. Another response is people want to take advantage of it. I have so much grace, I can go do whatever I want. It doesn't matter if I sin. A third response is a person who says, um, I love this grace. Now, what do I need to do in order to stay secure in it? I think that we will move back and forth from some of those two extremes. But life and healing comes when we get lost in the breathtaking grace of God. You know, it was St. Ignatius, who he boils down the Christian life. He says it's just about three things. Number one, position yourself to know Jesus better. Just, just want to know Jesus. You want to know what the Father's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know Jesus. All of a sudden, you will see more of what the Father's like than you ever know. So we start with knowing. He said, then ask the Holy Spirit to help you grow intimate with Jesus. Love him more. Learn how much he loves you. And out of that, then move forward to serve. But he had a word to correct. Don't go out and try to serve until you really know or you're getting to know and you're getting to love. Because part of my problem was this. I had a little bit of his love. I went out to serve. I turned it into doing. I turned it into performance. I turned it into Jesus plus. And in the end, there was a barrenness in my soul. But when we can begin to say, Lord, just wrap me up in a deeper understanding of Christ as the center and, and learning to love him and receive his love, all of a sudden service flows out. You know, Seth, there's this passage of scripture that really moves me and it comes in Zephaniah. No, no, in Zechariah. I think it must be chapter seven or eight that says there will come a day when 10 people from all nations will lay their hand on a Jew and say, 
may we walk with you because we see that God is with you. I think when we begin to prioritize breathtaking grace, a worshipful response to this amazing love of God, that all of a sudden there's something attractive about it and people will come and say, may we walk with you because we see that God is with you. Hmm. Well, and that's not always, I think you hit on it earlier too. It's not always what you're doing. It's the way that you're posturing. It's just being present, being there, responding to people as people need to be responded to. Sitting there, you know, sometimes being a Mary as opposed to a Martha, though the world needs both. The world definitely needs needs both. Point people in the right direction, Terry. Where do they go to do more to get more of what you're doing? Because I mean, you do a lot of things. You you've got retreats, you do speaking events. I think you have a podcast. You definitely have this book and other books. Like you do a lot of things. And so, what would be the place that people get to to learn more about you? Grab a hold of the book and all the other things. Well, if they go to terrywardle.com, they're going to find a link to all kinds of things, literature, video series. There's going, and a lot of those are absolutely free. Uh, there's also going to be a list of the events where I'm out speaking, which I'm out most of the time talking to people about grace and also training people to position people for healing. We also have these healing retreats, eight days where people come together in a small group with very highly qualified uh, caregivers who will walk them through. And then we have a new ministry called the Healing Care Center, where individuals are going through a tough spot. They can come and stay with us and spend five to 10 days and receive deep counseling and care that's all focused on the very things we've talked about. So a website is one of the best places to go. There is a second website that I have. It's just HCM International. Stands for Healing Care Ministry International. Go there. You'll find all kinds of material. And if they buy the book, at the end of the book, it gives all that kind of information. And we exist to position people to experience deep healing in Christ. That's that's all that we're about. Nice. Nice. Well, thank you again. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, and I, I enjoy your authentic, I have enjoyed your authenticity and your transparency in your book. It's a lot of people say a lot of things and they don't say anything at all. But there's so much of you in this book. Um, I really appreciate it. But thank you again so much for coming on, Terry. Well, it's been a joy. And uh, hey, the Lord gets all the glory as always. Hmm, absolutely. I'm going to make this outro as brief as possible. Um, I've listened to this episode with Terry now twice, and I really like it. I like what it calls us to do. I like what it calls me to wrestle with, and I would love to hear some of your feedback on that. Let me know what you thought of the show. Email in at canisaythisatchurch at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, message, Instagram, although I check that rarely. I'm really bad at Instagram. I think that generation missed me, or I missed that generation, or however you say that sentence. I look forward to next week for episode 100. Tell your friends, let's do this thing. Be blessed.